from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio Looking out onto a wet, almost fallish June, June, is it not June? May morning. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess May showers also bring flowers. I, I, don't, I don't know. Cause is that still we, 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 we've certainly had a lot of them the last uh, we don't need week more or May, two. We don't no. need more May showers. No, May we're 31, don't. we're done. We're done with the May showers. I won't say I'm ready for the humidity, but I'm ready for a little bit of Philadelphia a summer heat. summer. Let's do summer. Well, yeah. this is Cade Massey, Shane Jensen rolling through the last day of May, the last Wharton Moneyball episode of May 2017. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We are here. Somebody, some part of our crew is here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. That phone number, in case you want to, give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Matt Johnson, our producer, standing by for your phone calls. He'll also take an email from you, especially if you're listening one of the five times we're replayed over the next week. Great way to reach us is email businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also email us during the show. We are known to pick up emails and respond to emails online or rather live during the show if you want to do it that way. Kate Massey and Shane Jensen in this morning. Our buddies, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, out doing Audie and Eric things. They'll be back. Some of us are always here. You're welcome to join. We've got a couple of guests lined up. As we usually do later in the show, we have um, we're going to ro- roll through the bottom of the hour with a new guest in the top of the next hour. But for the next half hour, open lines, open conversation. I haven't laid eyes on Shane Jensen in like two months. Yeah, and he is a we, we sight, got a lot to catch up on. A sight to behold, people. Boston oh. Red Sox hat, some uh, some 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 beer related shirt. I suspect no wilderness wilderness. Wilderness activities. It's Japanese and it's got a bear on it, my shirt. You guys are just going to have to, the rest is going to be up to be up to your imagination. Shane spent some time in Japan. Shane, did you pick anything up about sports in Japan or East Asia more generally? Yes. So um, I think uh, two different things. I mean, A, I saw a baseball game in the Tokyo Dome. Um, is that while the it's stadium? There. It's, I mean, it's their have- biggest stadium. It would be like, you know, I guess the Fenway Park of <laughs> Park, it's more. On. It's a dome. It's like you know. I don't know. Sky dome. Uh, Sky dome. It's the Sky dome of Japan. Now they have That's two right. two big teams in Tokyo, right? They've got about three or four big teams kind of surrounding Tokyo. This was kind of like one of the. T- but aren't this there was, two this- Tokyo teams? Am I wrong? There's no. There's like four. I mean, in the greater Tokyo area. I'm talking Tokyo. Come on, man. Tokyo Center City. Proper. We're Center right. City, Philadelphia. Okay, okay, people. okay. Yes, yes, we're yes. Not, we're so, not just in the suburbs. All right. Yeah. No. no these, teams. these are the two Tokyo teams. It was all the right. Colt Swallows. Okay. Against the uh, Yamori Giants, and All those right. are two Tokyo teams. Like, i.e., people were walking around the stadium. Both had Tokyo on their kind of jerseys or whatever. It was an amazing experience. Um, what was amazing about it? Well, just the sort of crowd energy. I mean, this was a game that like was like seven one. I think for most. I mean, it was not a, a particularly close. It was a good game, but it was not a particularly close game. But the yep. amount of energy and you know, people. St- more people stayed until the end than I think a game that would have been close in America. It was okay. pretty amazing. Um, there's chanting. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, there's uh, 
there's a so it's people like, who it's, bring it's, around like beer on like little keg backpacks throughout the stands, which I think is a technology that America could easily adopt. But so instead of a big not. rack of, of beer, yeah. of cans, they're pouring you into it's cups. Literally, instead they're of pouring that, you out of a little, little a backpack tap. keg. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty That's pretty great. It's slick, right? Yeah, that's pretty great. Oh, my goodness. You said chanting? There's chanting? Oh, there's chanting throughout the game. So it's like never soccer in the UK? Yeah, no, it basically kind of take the energy of like, you know, a, a, a kind of a U- Right, a European soccer game where people are constantly chanting or singing something or there's some kind of like, you know, there's some kind of like kind of act they did with like an umbrella. The occult swallows have this kind of umbrella thing that they do when they're trying to, you know, it's kind of their version of the rally cap. Everybody brought an umbrella to the game and is like doing oh, this weird umbrella no, it dance. A, it was a dome. They brought umbrellas to a dome. Yeah, it was clearly just for this like, you know, we're going to, if if we're behind, maybe they do it if they're ahead too. I don't know. But anyway. If we're behind, we're going to do this little elaborate. umbrella dance. That is elaborate. It's right. Yeah, no, it, 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 this is the thing. They, they uh, like everything, the Japanese, when they commit to something, they commit fully. <laughs> and they are they are fully committed to being baseball fans over there. It, it, it was actually a really impressive energy. That's I liked awesome. it a lot. Shane, I actually was wondering about this this morning um, because of the Indy 500. So there's a nice connection that we'll come back to eventually because the Japanese driver won the Indy for the first time. But... The Indy is the Indy 500 is known as one of the great spectacles in sports, mm-hmm. but it's very different than you know a baseball game. Yeah, you study urban analytics. This is one of your new topics, and um, and maybe maybe you should tell us real quickly what does that mean? What does it mean, urban analytics? Oh, it's 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 sort of a I guess it's um kind of trying to use like a lot of the more kind of high resolution big data that's available right now for cities things like you know exactly where all crimes are occurring you know where house you know sort of like things like zillow where where house prices like are 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 higher or lower than you would expect um to what end to what end to basically sort of i mean my own interest is to sort of see like to what extent the built environment you know, of the city, like how the streets are laid out, how densely the houses are, how how things are zoned, commercial versus residential, how all those sort of like kind of aspects of the built environment basically encourage, can encourage like vibrancy. And that's kind of a vaguely defined concept. But like, you know, like a human yeah. activity on the street Great. and then how that human activity on the street is kind of like, does that then subsequently discourage crime? Great. Okay, wonderful. Let's stay with this just the simpler, the previous step, vibrancy. This is the reason for my question yeah. to you in particular. Could we measure game atmosphere, event atmosphere in oh, a way yeah. that that would pit the Indy 500 against the Kentucky Derby, against the Super Bowl, against a soccer match in the UK? I think you could. I, I think it'd be hard. I mean, I mean, the first thing that sprung to mind, just as you were saying that, I'm like, oh, well, we could just put some decibel meters in the stadium or okay, something good. like that. Let's do I that. mean, that's something that's like one thing. Indy 500, though. <laughs> well, Indy- I don't know if the decibel meter would, I mean, whether we'd be able to separate out the noise of the actual event from the noise of the crowd responding well, to said event. That's I, a technological challenge, at but, least. But Indy should get credit for the noise. Yeah, And, and one of the so. most profound aspects of attending the Indy 500 yeah. is the noise of yeah. it. And it's not just the yeah. sheer, I'm not talking about just like overwhelmed, I'm talking about when the cars come by. You appreciate at a visceral level what's going on. Yeah, out there. no, and I and I've never been actually to a, 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 a like car racing event. I've been to horse racing, which is yes, the crowd energy there is unbelievable. Obviously, the horses aren't producing that kind of noise, but I have been to a monster truck rally, monster, <laughs> monster, monster truck rally. Of course, you and 
course. I mean, you know, and probably you haven't lived if you haven't been to a monster, monster, monster truck rally. Um, and their their noise is a big part of the game as well, as you might guess. Okay, so what? But come on, you're an urban analyst. Yeah, guy. No, so, you okay. You so be, noise, noise, Shane, is not, you have to be very creative. And your yeah. line of work, you're having to be very creative. You're also tapping into new sources of data. Yeah, new ways I, I, of measuring. I would I would have like basically some sort of heart rate measuring Fitbit on everybody. Yeah, there you go. All I right. think that would be the real way to do it. Like actually measure sort of like people's response, the sort of like I guess the energy the energy that they're producing, you know, kind of essentially like on a you know, like through, you know, their heart rate, whatever other response you can kind of do mm-hmm. like on their bodies. I think that would be the way of really measuring kind of crowd excitement basically. Mm-hmm. Or the most direct measurement of crowd excitement. That would that's just going right at it, right? Yeah. What what else do you think is a part of it. So, and you and you also might want to tap into harder, more aesthetic things like, you know, the difference between going to a basketball, college basketball yeah. game at the Palestra or Cameron or Fog Allen yeah. versus, you know, some yeah, professional and, and, stadium. Right, and so I, I think sort of like it would be amazing. And, and this, I mean, you're it, it's good you're kind of you know we're really diving into this because you know with the urban sort of measure vibrancy like of a city street i mean we all kind of know what vibrancy means in terms of like oh this is a vibrant street versus this street is totally dead but actually measuring that quantitatively is difficult and and part of it is kind of an aesthetic you look at a street and you're like oh this is a really nice street i want to hang on part of it is an aesthetic but but aesthetic suggests that it's up to one's interpretation. Part of it is kind of objective, like, yes, or at least, right. the, or at least, it fits a yeah. vast majority of people's aesthetic. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, like the aesthetic part of of kind of like sports attendance or something like that would be you could try and capture that. It would be more subjective, like you know, like you know, the experience of going to Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. versus like you know just going to sort of a random like yeah. you know cookie cutter stadium. Right. That that I think would be hard to capture, like with people i mean i guess you could always go to the default which is surveys or something like that yeah, when you yeah, when you yeah. can't actually measure something you do a survey <laughs> but um <laughs> i feel like that is that an adequate summary of social i think it's science? fair and it but it's it's a, it's a little more cutting than it needs to be no that's right it's, that's it's, right it's, it's more it's, dismissive of 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 the value of surveys certainly well, certainly they're limited yeah absolutely they're limited but um, your point is when you can't do anything else that may be a way it yeah, may be a right. way to get at it that's right and uh but, so, where, so stepping back from some of that, where yeah. do you think the Indy 500 stacks up relative to other major sporting events? Where is it on your per- personal pantheon of events? Do you oh, want- I mean, like in terms of basically, you know, in like, you know, I've, I've, you know, I guess if you want to call it a bucket list or whatever, in terms of sort of like a top 20 things that I kind of w- haven't done yet but would like to do in my life, going to the Indy 500 is definitely one of them. Go, you mentioned the Kentucky Derby. That's another one, definitely. Yeah, in fact, I'm even more sure. excited. After my kind of horse racing, I, I went to, to Happy Valley in Hong Kong and had a fantastic time do, watching the horse racing there. Hold on, there. hold on, hold on. You're the guy who's been like short horse. You've been dismissed. You've been flat out dismissive of horse racing on it. as a sport. I've, I've come you around. You said on things it. like, "I'd rather watch like humans compete than animals." Yeah, and 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 a, and a big person is able to admit when they are wrong, <laughs> and this is a case for that. Yeah, no, I, I've I've kind of come around on horse racing. Um, one trip to the track in Tokyo, yeah, in, or is it Hong Kong? Hong Kong, Hong one, Kong, Hong one, Kong. So yeah. one, <laughs> okay. one trip. Okay, so you went to a baseball game in Tokyo among the two. I big I, teams, I, I almost. You, I mean, oh my goodness, uh, at Hong Kong, I almost won like. Eight hundred Hong Kong dollars. What is that? It's like a hundred bucks. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. But whatever. The excitement was there. How did you? How did you almost win? Well, okay. So I mean, there's various there's various bets, um, types of bets you can do. And I walked in there. Me and my friend walked in there, and um, 
we were trying to do, you know, we were just like, oh, tell us how to bet, basically. And and the, a guy sat us down and spent like 20 than, minutes. Hold on. Is it different than American horse race betting? I I mean, having never bet on horses, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, I mean it, it seemed very complicated. And I don't know Shane, how many layers of your, this. You're about to lose your seat in this particular show. I know. Well, three I mean, years, three years on, we've been talking about Kentucky Derbies and Prigacy. Well, I know what to. I, uh, okay, so let, let me explain myself. Obviously, betting a horse to win—that's a relatively uncomplicated <laughs> endeavor. I know what I'm doing with that. It's like right. I, I okay. think that horse is going to win. I understand what odds mean. I'm not, you know, I'm not a complete idiot. Okay. But then you start like trying to explain, like, okay, so this particular type of bet, you're betting. Three of the, you know, you need the top three horses to finish, you know, finish, but it doesn't matter what order they are. You, or you right. need the top two, you, you need to pick the top two horses. It doesn't matter what order you are. Things start getting complicated, especially yeah. when you're like in Hong Kong. Okay, so you can do so, win, place, show, and then you can yeah. do these other things. Yeah, that's like right. Like the trifectas and yeah, things yeah, yeah. like that. And I and so the, the, the race in question that I almost won big on was this one where you had to pick the top two horses. Um but it didn't matter what order. So you okay. don't have to pick you don't actually have to pick one and two. You yeah, just have to yeah. pick the top two. Yeah. Um relatively simple, though it was complicated at the it seemed complicated mm-hmm. at the time. Um anyway, so I picked these two horses and they're kind of long shots. Neither of them like both of them were kind of middle of the pack odds wise for the you, race. How did you pick them, Shane? They had amazing names. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hard to turn down the horse. Yeah. Yeah. I think one was uh one was like reluctant party or something. Like it was like weird. I don't know. It made no sense. It was a very kind of whatever. Anyway, so I picked these two horses. Let's you know, call them, she, let's call them Rebu- reluctant party and I don't know calculus withdrawal. I don't, I'm just making up <laughs> horse names at this point. Um, and these two horses going down the tracks. It was, it was one of the longer races of the evening, and they're, they're both like near the top. I'm getting super excited. I'm like, is this actually going to happen? They finished one and three. Oh, geez, Shane! Wow, that, yeah. that is a good moment. Yeah, and that's enough to turn you on to horse racing. There you go. And then have I, you... I, it turns out I don't need much. I just actually kind of have to experience it. Basically, I think. Okay, you so know? you have? A, are you fighting the 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 draw to the tracks right now? Are you thinking maybe <laughs> that's the way you'll spend your day tomorrow? Yeah, you yeah, could come into no. the office, or you could. You could go to the tracks and get your fix. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm on sabbatical. I could do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did you spend your sabbatical, Shane? Horse track. Yeah, I learned, I learned gambling. Yeah. Horse gambling. Very productive. So, so okay, this sounds like I, I, we didn't know that this was going to be like a, a, a sports expedition to yeah. East Asia. Oh, I haven't even talked talk to you about sumo. You did not do sumo. Well, I did not do sumo. <laughs> I mean, sadly, I probably could do sumo. But, uh... No, I did, but I watched sumo. You not did? not live. Not that, live. That, that, that's that's a hard ticket to get. But it was a, one Is of their it? big tournaments was on TV when I was there. Wow! And it's it's an event. Oh my goodness! I mean, I, I I'm not going to pretend to understand the event very well. Okay. Because definitely in terms of like uh, ceremony to actual action ratio, yeah, right. Sumo is like, like pretty Catholic, high on the Catholic ceremony. Church, Catholic church. Yeah. Sumo no, wrestling. I mean, because there's a lot of kind of like. The two wrestlers kind of get in the middle of the ring, and they there's a ton of posture, and so they get and they look like they're about to come at each other, and then they'll kind of you know psych each other out, and then they'll walk away, and they'll do like a little round of the ring or whatever, and like maybe throw some powder or something like that, and do a little really? bit more posture, and like you know grunt a bit, and then they'll get back, <laughs> and they'll size each other up, and then they'll walk away again. And I'm just, and I think if you're Japanese and you understand the commentary, like all this makes sense. Like it's like, of course, they're, they're, you know, these guys posture three times and then they like attack each other or whatever. I had no idea what's going on. Like, like I really was on the edge of my seat because, and the thing is, when they actually go at it, 
I mean, it lasts about five seconds before one of them gets launched out of the ring. Is that right? Yeah. I, I watched maybe like eight of these matches, and I don't think a single one made it past 10 seconds. Oh, my. It's, it's like, really it's short. It's like bull riding. Yeah. But it, it, it's you know, or like, yeah, it's, it's like two trucks charging each other, and one of them gets knocked back, and the other one doesn't. Huh. I wonder if, you know, we talk about sports varying on how much chance there is in determining the outcome. Yeah. I wonder how much chance there is in sumo. I mean, I got I got the impression that, I mean, you know, they slow down and analyze it afterwards. Um, and though, again, all the commentaries <laughs> in Japanese, I, I got the impression that there is, there's a lot of skill involved. I mean, it's, it's basically kind of like a really, like, quick wrestling match. Like, because it's really all about, like, how, like, some guy gets a better angle on the other guy and able is able to kind of push him back or, like, you know is able to kind of, with his footwork, stabilize himself in now, such now a way. Now you know what it reminds me of now? It reminds me of face-offs in, in hockey. Yeah. Actually, to, that's that's a good analogy because it's very quick, but uh, it, it, it I think it is mostly skill. To, to the outside eye, face-offs look like just complete chance. Yeah. I mean, it happens so fast. How can anything, how can that relate? But if you run the stats, it yeah. turns out some guys are reliably better at it than others. And mm-hmm. I, certainly that's the case for sumo. In fact, I think 538's done some work on, on sumo wrestling, of actually. Because... For one thing, the records go back like really far. I mean, you know, we 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 love baseball because the records for baseball go back like a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Sumo, four hundred years, right? <laughs> that, I mean, they've been, right? they've been they've been doing it for like four hundred years, and, right and they've been super meticulous about it for four hundred uh, years. So I, I feel like they're they're have I, I should. Go what do you think, the, what do you think the box score, a sumo wrestling box score, looks like? Is it one? I, I was looking at it. I was staring at it <laughs> through my TV for a long time, and it. I mean, mostly it's just win. It's 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 win and loss. It's I, I think there's nothing. Zeros. It's ones and zeros. There's. An, so, I mean, I'm sure maybe they can kind of measure like you know, I guess time it took or like some kind of technique somebody used, but that's beyond my knowledge so, at this point. So M- Matt, our producer, is on it. He says professional sumo dates back to 1684. Yeah. So 400 yeah. and almost 50 years now. The results of every tournament since 1761 have been collected into the greatest historical data set in sports. That's not are you right? Are you just plagiarizing sites now, Matt? The greatest historical data set in sports. Well, it's I mean, fair. It's, it's fair. You know, real it's time, fair. real time support plagiarism's okay. This is Wharton if, you, Mon- if you take it from Wikipedia, it doesn't count as plagiarism. <laughs> That's Fun right. fact. Well, this is this is Wharton Moneyball. Uh Cade Massey, Shane Jensen in here. Give us a shout. One eight four four Wharton. One eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We're getting a recap of Shane's tour of East Asian sports. Yeah. Had no idea. No, it turned out to be – it was more rich in sports. I was over there for the European stuff. It was more rich in sports than I anticipated. Well, I knew you did the horse racing thing because yeah. you texted me from the track and said you had no <laughs> idea what you were doing. But I guess that was before you almost nailed – Yeah, the, no, it's it's before I almost won big and became like a Hong Kong billionaire. You've forgotten the, there's a word for this top two thing. It's uh, it's not trifecta, obviously, but there is a simple little word there. Maybe yeah. R.A. Yeah. slash producer could come up with that one, too. Top two horses. Top two horses. And what is that? What is the name of that thing? I, I, I would really like to hear that because they, they called it something. Quine- the exacta? Quinella? Quinella. So, Quinella? There you go. Yeah, that's right. what, yeah that, that sounds very familiar. Okay, Quinella. I'm, okay. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the Quinella. So, Shane, what about the tragedy that we don't have a triple crown to pull for? So, it's this weird thing in horse racing where <laughs> yeah. no one pays any attention except for the triple crown. Yeah. And, and we, then we, if we, the Preakness winner is different than the Derby winner, then you're out of luck. Yeah. And that's what we got this year. Right. And, I mean, I think uh, it's interesting because we, we, we discussed this a little bit on the show last week. Um that the Kentucky, it was kind of a conscious choice this year, right? That the the horse that won the Derby was intentionally held out of the Preakness, or the other way around. No, I don't. The, the no, the way around. The Preakness, yeah, the, the Preakness winner did not run the Derby. Right, that's right, that's right. So I mean, it was kind of guaranteed essentially that that this would 
Happen, right? No, the winner wasn't guaranteed. There's no guarantee that course is going to win. Well, no, and that okay. happens every that happens every year, and it's just a, it's a strategy. They we can run a fresh horse, yeah. against these other guys that ran three weeks before. No, but I mean it is, it's it's an interesting strategy because I mean you're obviously there's something about that horse that says says to those trainers and everything like that. This is a horse that we really think is capable of winning the Preakness for whatever reason, but we don't somehow think is able to win Kentucky Derby. Yeah, right? that's right, that's and. Right. Um, it, it it's interesting to me. I mean, this is something we'd have to ask, like an, a trainer. I think, like, what what aspect of that yeah. horse was was the you know, right. like, what why why do some why are some horses kind of capable of handling like these this variance in track length and maybe yep. variance in conditions, and other horses not? Yeah. And what what do you see about them that makes them yep. makes you because they presumably make that d- decision like months out. Well, I think some make the decision closer than that. Yeah. So, and sometimes it's not quite. It could that be just strategic. a fatigue thing. Yeah, perhaps. It, it's, right. it's a read of the horse that he's yeah. not not peaking at the right time. That yeah. That kind of thing. So Shane, you went away for a while, came back, and you know you got your sports fix from these yep. East Asian things. But what did catch your eye when you got back to North America, and you and you landed kind of in the heat of the NBA yeah. playoffs, the NHL playoffs, some some interesting tennis. What 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 have you been thinking about since you've been back? Well, I, so a, a few things that kind of caught my eye. Um, one, the Yankees are good, which is kind of disconcerting. Yeah, but what, disconcerting. what's that all about <laughs> anyway? But they were um, not supposed. They are the. I think they're the single most overperforming team relative to expectations, yeah. at least in the American League side of things. Yeah, I think they almost, uh, I, I think I was reading somewhere, they almost exactly balanced the Giants, who are the yeah, most underperforming right. team. Most underperforming <laughs> yeah. is Giants. Yeah. The, uh, you average the Yankees and the Giants, and you get the expectations, yeah, expectations for those two teams. Expectations are spot on. Yeah. Spot on, Shane. Um, so, yeah, so, so let's, that's, hold on, that's let's one thing. Un- let's unpack that for a second. Yeah. So preseason, Fangraphs had the Yankees at 15.9% to make the playoffs, and now they're 72. So from 16 to 72, that's a pretty big increase. Yeah. The Giants, on the other hand, came into the season 66% likely to make the playoffs, according to fan graphs. Now only 10. Yeah. I mean, the Gi- aren't the Giants kind of up and down every year? They they won the World Series every I mean, other year for like three cycles in that's a row? That's right. That's right. I'm trying to, you know, that's right. They For for three for three cycles, they won every, uh, they were basically, even your Giants were like dominant. Uh-huh. They won, uh, they've won three World Series, all of them in the kind of well, even alternate 2017. Years. Can't expect that much. Yeah. Though. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, they kind of, you know, they, maybe it's over now. They didn't win 2016 <laughs> either. But That's, uh, that's, yeah. a cl- that's classic overfitting right there, man. Right. There's a good example of what yeah. not to do. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think we're given that they've won three World Series in the last like you decade. Nobody's nobody's going to feel too bad about the Giants. Okay, um, and I don't think anybody's really. You know, I mean, obviously nobody's really that excited about the Yankees. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this we can say, unlike our two co-hosts that aren't here right now, I can say in. this: they're not they're not here right now. So okay, so I can say that we're getting a fresh look yeah. at sports from the eyes of someone who was in East Asia for a yeah. month or three weeks or something. Oh, so Yankees are first. Yeah. I, I understand that. What else? Um, well, okay, so I, I think it's crazy that Na- Nash, the Nashville Predators are in the finals. Yeah. And it, it, it's sort of, um, I think it's wonderful. Unfortunately, I think they're not going to win, but, you know, they, they they have a chance. They have a good chance. Okay, you're talking about, in case it's not yeah. obvious, because it's not obvious, because you said Nashville and Predators, and nothing about that suggests hockey. But yeah. Shane's talking about the NHL finals, the Stanley yeah. Cup finals, which are one game in now, and it's the Pittsburgh Penguins against the Nashville Predators. Uh, uh, Nashville Predators. By, and, so there's lots about that that's unexpected. One. They're the in Nash- Nashville, yeah, and two. More importantly, they were the number eight seed, yeah, the last right. team, the last team in from yep. the West, and they made it through the West. And and and, and I, I think that that to me sort of like 
illustrates is, you know, it's a microcosm for just, you know, I love the NHL hockey playoffs because they really are pretty unpredictable. <laughs> you know, I mean, would we ever get an eight seed in the NBA finals? No, Never. absolutely not. It's no inconceivable, way. really, yeah. that an eight seed would go to the NBA finals. And it's inconceivable that they win the first round, much less win four rounds or whatever right. it takes. That's right. So, so I think that's super exciting. And it's not particularly unusual for something like that to happen in hockey. Um, and I kind of hope they. So that's you know, a good thing, right? No, I, mean, you'd I rather think have, it's a, I you'd think rather it's a have more noise thing. than the than the NBA gives us. That's right. I mean, that's we've right. known since the first tip back in October who yeah, was going to be the. Finals. We knew it was going to be Golden State Cleveland. I mean, at various points throughout the season, we convinced ourselves. We we tried to convince ourselves that something else could happen. Oh, San Antonio surging right now, <laughs> or oh my goodness, the Celtics are for real. We can, you know, I I remember. Especially Eric. Eric wants to believe basketball actually is not completely predictable. He was convincing himself about San Antonio and all these very Come on. It was going to be Golden State and Cleveland. We okay, played so a lot you, of games to get there, but it was going to be Golden yeah, State and Cleveland. Yeah, so it's not it's not so much fun. So now so let's, the, let's stay with hockey for a second. Yeah, though. Sure. Let's stay with hockey for a second. Have you watched any of it? I, I know we don't we don't lean on you too heavy as our Canadian. No, no. I mean, I, it was it was hard while I was in Japan to kind of keep up with yeah. the playoffs, but I've I've been watching a little bit since I got back, and it's been, it's been really great. I mean, uh, so we actually kicked out a, a a public service announcement last whatever it was Thursday night, mm-hmm. Friday night when. The Pens and Senators. Senators went to overtime in Game Seven because double, double overtime. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. But when they hit overtime, we we shot a little PSA that said, "Hey, if you're not watching this, get yourself to Fox Sports Network because it's tough to beat overtime hockey in the playoffs." But Game Seven, yeah, overtime no, it's hockey, it's really just yeah. fantastic. So that's a game that you know when they got into the third period and they were still tight. We made sure we got on the TV, and they went to yeah. OT. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. And I, I, I feel like hockey is the only real sport that's kind of figured out this overtime thing. That like you know the way to handle overtime is you basically just keep tacking on chunks of like the game. Like you don't change, you don't set up an overtime structure that is at all different than the. You don't think that varies game. by. You don't think the optimal OT varies by sport. Oh, it probably does because there's maybe you know. Injury considerations would, or yeah. you know, or whatever, like 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 you know, I mean, I'm just I hearken back to say, for example, like the la- like uh, the last say playoff game, the, like the NFL like in the Super Bowl, the fact that overtime is so different kind of in its structure, the sort of score well, co- first college and football it's done. Is, college football, college football is, is even biggest, more. Yeah, yeah. they, they play a very different game. But, you know? some, but some, so does soccer. I mean, soccer does a very different thing too. I mean, well, they, at least they give one period of normal. Yeah, but I mean, like you know, I mean. You know, if they if they hadn't scored in the previous like 120 minutes, the fact that you're tacking on another like 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever is kind of whatever. I mean, I think just keep playing soccer until somebody scores. <laughs> These people start dying out there on the pitch. I mean, falling over. Well, okay, I've got a solution for that. Every 20 minutes, you keep playing soccer just like you normally would, but every 20 minutes, you take one person off from each team. Well, now hockey did that as well, right? So hockey, they play. Three on three or four on four or whatever it is. In, in the regular season, they do the four on four for regular the season overtime. OT. This is just yeah. brilliant because who yeah. doesn't enjoy? If you like hockey, yeah. you like four on four hockey even yeah. better, right? Yeah, because it's just more wide open. And that's, that's right. only like a five year ago kind of rule change. Yeah, and they only do that in the regular season. So in right. the playoffs, they right. just sort of do five on five. But you do it's get like... the sense that they're about to start like falling over. I mean, the, yeah. the first seven, eight, ten minutes of overtime are just amazing because yeah. everybody on the ice is giving everything they got. They play, they play like thirty second shifts, forty five second shifts, and then they just start crazy dying. Crazy marathon, 
And why couldn't soccer do that? I think it's an insult to the athletes to suggest that they couldn't just do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they, 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 so- <laughs> soccer athletes are the most in shape people like on the know. planet. They might, they might just end up going to. I, I mean, I, of- obviously, the key thing is that you can actually substitute out in hockey versus soccer. So maybe yeah. we could, maybe the way of actually doing this soccer thing is we could change the substitution rule somehow. Uh-huh. Like you're allowed like an extra two substitutions once it hits overtime uh-huh. or something. Okay, so I have a, I have, a, I have a, a small question for you about hockey. The, do you remember the winning goal in that game seven? Did, did you watch it at all? Yeah. So uh, the the guy who scored that is a, one of their big scorers. Right? Yeah. I'm not going to get the names of these guys right. In fact, I'm completely blanking on who's the captain of well, the Crosby. Pins? Crosby. So Crosby, that was, that was on one, it was about, I don't know, five, six minutes into the second overtime. It was a one-timer from the guy, and it was kind of a knuckleball, and it was beautifully placed. Yeah. Some luck, whatever. But the setup for that, Crosby's little pass down. Usually in hockey, they whip the puck around. I mean, they they, they, they really do yeah. hit it hard, and they catch these things, and that's a big part of it. This was like this little bitty soft pass at Crosby. I, I missed it at the time, and then in the in the, in the mm-hmm. replay, it was like a little soft little set. He just kind of pitched it over there yeah. as softly as possible. Is that? Do you see that very yeah. often? Is that? Yeah, and it reminds <laughs> me. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a huge Crosby fan. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, it's very uncool in this area to be a Crosby fan. Is that uh, right? Philadelphia, yeah. Why is that? We, they don't like the Penguins here. It's like cross shaped. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Okay, but I, I have to respect that guy. I mean, the, the. Um, Probably the last hockey player that I've seen that has that kind of skill set that's able to just sort of like, you know, do the soft pass or like basically has this kind of like radar around him where he kind of knows where his teammates are yeah. at all times yeah. and just is able to find them yeah. in any moment. The last time I've seen that before Crosby was probably Mario Lemieux. Okay, going back another Pittsburgh. You know, how is Pittsburgh? Great. Pittsburgh had Lemieux and then Yager and then Crosby. How yeah. does that work? I mean, that's like Indianapolis Colts having Peyton Manning and then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to know how much is well-run franchise versus really like uh, you know, you know, just luck. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they. I I think it's a little bit of luck or at least whatever because they, you know, Pittsburgh definitely like during the Lemieux Yager years were on the top of the league and then they got real bad for a while and that's gave them the opportunity to get. Crosby. I mean, they did the kind of suck for luck thing themselves, basically. <laughs> New phrase. All right. One before we go to break, we have a call from Jake down in Houston, Texas. Jake, welcome to the show. So I think it's interesting is the soccer pitch is shortened by about twenty percent. We tested it in the scores that we had um, for these kids that we did that with with the same amount of players was a lot higher versus one nil on the soccer pitch because it's such a wide open field and yeah. the ball is being passed around. So if you shorten it by about 20%, you'll have a higher scoring game, more action, more activity. Versus oh, that is the, the no- players. That is All a right. nice solution. Jake, I like that. Th- you just thanks, like, man. like at the overtime, like you could have a whole ceremony about it where they just walk <laughs> the field in. <laughs> and then every few minutes they start yeah. shrinking it some yeah. more. Or just have it kind of continual. Like just <laughs> slowly closing in on them all as they're like trying to focus on the game. That's like awesome. Game. Yeah. That's awesome. Jake, Jake, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four 
942-7866. Oh, look at that. Dion Simpkins joined us. I could swear you weren't there at the beginning of the show, but he's here now. He's here now rolling us up out of the bottom of the hour. Dion Simpkins, the original sound engineer on this show, now associate producer. And we're always glad to see Dion in here. Shane, uh, you mentioned baseball before. You mentioned being kind of dismayed that the Yankees were actually competitive <laughs> yeah, this right. year. Uh, it turns out, but, you know, I can, I can, I can deal. I can what deal. else about MLB um, catches you? Are we talking about the demise of the Giants, seemingly? Yeah. Um, uh, what about the Astros, man? Yeah, the Astros the are Brewers? crushing it? Brewers, what the Brewers and Rockies are doing is kind of fascinating. I mean, the Astros, at least, we kind of predicted would be. I, well, they're kind of our favorites, right? Because Yeah, no, I mean, a, for lots of reasons. It's now. an incredibly well run organization that, like, you know, and. and Their general managers are Warren alum. Yep, that's right. <laughs> it's always um, a positive thing. And, and, and kind of like, you, you, it's pretty easy to sort of. Oh, not easy. Nothing's easy in predicting baseball, but it's not surprising at all that they're kind of. You know, doing as well as they they are. Yeah, right? but they're like they're like top. You know, Fangraphs has them projected as the best record in baseball or something crazy. Yeah, mm-hmm. right now the projected full season number is Astros really? ninety eight wins, tops in major league that baseball. Does, that does actually surprise me. So but, it, so just the the degree of their success mm-hmm. is 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 heartening for money. Yeah, folks. yeah, no, that's right. Um, and you know, I I mean, I think it helps too that they're in you know. Not the hardest division right now, you know. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh, AL East snobbery. No, re- I mean, <laughs> no. I'm just kind of thinking that, like, you know, I mean, Seattle. No, it's true. It's not. It's hard. Bad, but not all that. It's hard to argue. Both with that. Seattle and Texas are kind of a little bit mediocre, and then and now the Angels just lost Trout, which yeah, was the only thing a, that kept that whole, team afloat. That's a whole another conversation. But you know, yeah. truthfully, you and me talking about baseball isn't very insightful. For real insight, we need to make a call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. On the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's call to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. All right, Rick Peterson, long-time Major League pitching coach, 15 years with the A's and the Mets and the Oreos. Now, recently, co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most, and from what I understand, just recorded a TED Talk out there in New Jersey. Rick, welcome to the show. All right. How's everybody doing today? We're doing well, man. Doing real fine. How are you? All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great. Great. Good Good to be on. What What's going on with you this morning? What's going on with you this week? Well, I have a big presentation tomorrow um, with a, a, a company, Alex, A-L-I-X. It's a consulting company, um, and we're doing a couple workshops afterwards, um, about a week afterwards. And I uh, just came off that TED as you said. There was like over 1,100 people All right. in the theater in Asbury Park. Were you, were, hey, this is great, Rick, because you're always trying to, you know, like calm pitchers down, help pitchers perform under pressure. Right, right. And now you got to put your money where your mouth is. Were you nervous? Uh, my butterflies were flying in formation, i got to tell you. Were they? You had them in formation? <laughs> yeah. How much work did yeah. it take to get them into formation? Uh, you know what? It was actually I. A TED is so different because it's really scripted. It's not. It's right. It's not. A, it's not a natural like keynote. Like the, like the one I'm doing tomorrow is about an hour keynote, and I'm about as nervous as I am talking to you guys right now. 
Yeah, um, we're high pressure. I know. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but, it, but it, and the TED was only like eight plus minutes, but because it's scripted, um, it was, it's a lot more challenging because I don't I don't do scripted right um, pre- presentations. Right. But it was but it was really so cool, and I and I learned so much about myself, not, and not only preparing for it, but um, you know, just the talk itself, but. But also, uh, the talk was on identity. So all, like, 20-some speakers had their version of what their perspective on identity was. Okay. And, and, and mine was really on, as a major league pitching coach, as, as we've talked many times, you know, the number one responsibility is, is to teach the mental game. And having the pitchers keep their minds calm and focused under pressure consistently. And, and, and mine was on mistaken identity. That was my title. Because when some of these guys have like a really bad outing, like when Izzy had that two pitch blown save in Yankee Stadium, um, it's a case of mistaken identity. You, know, you go, they go in this place where right. they no longer look at themselves as an all star closer. Mm-hmm. Right, they look at themselves as a failure. And then you go to this place in your mind, like, geez, I'm so stupid. You're like, what was I thinking? You know, how could I be such an idiot? And it's hard to and, avoid and, those and, negative thought processes, actually. It really is. And one of the things I said was that if your mind if had speakers that were broadcast for everyone to hear, when you go in that space, people would think you're crazy. Without question. <laughs> yeah. But, but we, all, we all go there. And it's, and it's in our DNA that we all go to that place, like immediately. And the key is to, to really understand where's that pause button. Mm-hmm. And to be able to push that pause button. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, which is what our book is about, Crunch Time. And, and how to seek the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And and some players, I mean, like you go back to Bill Buckner, that ground ball went between his legs. He went to that mistaken identity for over 20 years. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean so when you really look at, you know, what goes on um, and, and how people fight it. I mean, look at... Look at mm-hmm. um, in his case, there's uh, a lot of obnoxious Boston fans that, like, <laughs> you know, kept reminding him to stay in that place. But, yeah. Exactly. And then you go, you go to golf. You go back a year ago, not this past year, but a year ago, on the back nine and the 12th hole, when Jordan Spieth put that ball Mm -hmm. in in the water twice, he still has not been the same. What do you think Spieth needs, Rick? If you you were able to spend a day with Spieth, what what would you be focusing on? Um, I I think as much as anything else, what I've learned as as coaching in these moments, that it's okay. This, this is part of the game. Like, nobody's immune to it. This is going to happen to everyone. And it happens to everyone in life. It happens to everybody in sports. Rick, and, how, do you, I, how do you balance that against, you know, part of what I think some makes these young phenoms special is that they don't think they're like everybody else. They're convinced that they're different from everybody else. And the world was telling Spieth that he was different. And so that was the first time where he realized, well, maybe I'm not, you know, impervious. And so you've got, you know, feeling that you're special is helpful, you know? Or, or, so you... Or, or maybe like a different take on that is sort of like the, to get where these people are, like Jordan Spieth's career, he probably hasn't failed a lot yeah. in life. Right. Like, exactly. or certainly not failed a lot in the golf aspect of his life. And exactly. so all of a sudden you come up with essentially what is uncategorically a failure. I, I, I would think, you know, to a certain extent, you, professional athletes should be very adapted to handle... <laughs> adversity because they presumably are challenged a lot but to actually kind of be able to process a failure maybe 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 they're actually not particularly well hooked up for that because you know they they haven't done that they don't have a lot of experience with failure 
Well, well I, 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 you're totally right. You're absolutely totally right. And, and I think what happens as much as anything is that that you go down this path and, and his preparation was off the charts. That's why he was so good, you know, without question. He's talented. I mean, everybody has to be talented. But when you look at how he, how he prepared... But I think the other factor, and, and I've, I've learned, again, so much since, since the book, because I'm really, I'm meeting a lot of, um, I had an, an hour-long conversation the other day with this woman. Um, I, 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 she, she, she wants to remain anonymous, but, but she's, a, she's, a, she's a neuroscientist. And learning how the brain is wired, and I think what happens is so, so many of us, you know, like, like, like speech, I shouldn't say so many, but... But there's this like there's no vulnerability because they because they are so talented they have not experienced failures but they don't really understand how the brain is actually wired and and when you understand how the brain is wired and you have a mindfulness training and a mindfulness practice you you can I read this unbelievable article yesterday talking about clutch like what is clutch and what actually is happening in the brain. When, when, like, Isaiah Thomas, after he, like, almost broke his ankle, like, scored, what, 30-some points in the, in, the, in, the, in the last, you know, in the, in the last quarter of the game, you know, with, with the Pistons. Or when LeBron James made, makes this incredible block um, in the playoffs last year, you know, coming from down the court. And, and, and they're talking about the fact that when people go in those moments, they basically are are in this right side of the brain, and and they're they're like there's no consequences. They're totally in this moment of of almost like euphoric like possibilities, and 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 the ability to understand how to get to that place with no consequences. There's no. I bet if you had a loudspeaker that you could play speech speech thoughts in that back nine on on the masters. He's probably going, geez, I'm, I'm like on the way to be, you know, to, to break an all-time record. You know, right. He's winning the Masters, and he wasn't in the moment for that shot. He was in the future mm-hmm. of, of, of what if I make all these shots. Yeah, so Rick, yeah. one of the things you're saying is that there's basically neuroscience now to back up what has been talked about just at a high level or at a gut level for right. really probably millennia, but certainly decades where the folk, the, you know, stay on what you have to do. The now. difficulty of entering that zone and the difficulty of staying in that zone. But, but at least the neuroscientists are telling us, well, the zone is a real thing. Yeah. We can see the activity in in the brain when people right. are in that place as opposed to another place. Rick, we exactly. we we um a, a clip jumped out to us over the weekend. Uh-huh. So Theo Epstein gave the senior day talk, which is like a commencement address at Yale University. He's a Yale grad. And, of course, Epstein is the head of baseball operations and, well, president. See, I don't know what his exact title is, but he, he runs the Chicago Cubs and is given right. credit for rebuilding them and taking them to their first world championship on the heels of having done the same thing for the Red Sox. Anyway, Epstein gave a speech at Yale, and uh, it was interesting and thoughtful, and a particular piece of it jumped out to us. We thought we might play it here and discuss it a bit with you. Awesome. Early in my career, I used to think of players as, as assets, statistics on a spreadsheet I could use to project future performance and measure precisely how much they were going to impact our team on the field. I used to think of teams as portfolios, diversified collections of player assets, paid to produce up to their projections to ensure the organization's success. My head had been down. 
that narrow approach worked for a while, but it certainly had its limits. I grew, and my team-building philosophy grew as well. The truth, as our team proved in Cleveland, is that a player's character matters. The heartbeat matters. Fears and aspirations matter. The player's impact on others matters. The tone he sets matters. The willingness to connect matters. Breaking down cliques and overcoming stereotypes in the clubhouse matters. Who you are, how you live among others, that all matters. Wow, strong stuff from Theo, and maybe not what you'd expect from a guy known as a numbers guy. What's your take on that, Rick? Well, what, what I, and I, had, I listened to a podcast that Theo did a while ago as well, and what he literally was talking about, the fact that, that the, the new frontier, everybody's a money ball team now, everybody. So, so there's no competitive edge there. The next competitive edge is understanding the mind, mm-hmm. understanding, understanding that the intangible difference you know, that people have and how they can you know, literally improve, so to speak, the, the projectability of the numbers with people. So Rick, he was talking about, and a lot of people talk about like a good, a good, uh, a good locker room guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's talking, about, he's talking about the he's talking about the impact of character, the way you live, this nebulous character yeah. quantity. And yeah. so it's it's not it's really not even the psychology of you know getting in the moment when you're you know at the plate mm-hmm. in these high leverage situations. It's he's talking about there at least, on, and, he, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. But here he's talking about the way you conduct yourself and the impact on other people. Yeah, I, I saying mean, it matters. And I think is, I mean, what I sort of took away when I was listening to it is, you know, you kind of like as a statistician, you kind of you talk about like models that are additive, right? Like, you know, so so you can kind of view a baseball team as a collection of additive parts. We just add this guy and like he adds two wins to this team. This other guy adds 2.1 wins to this team. It's all independent. All independent. Whereas what I think Theo is really seizing on is what, and I think it's more of the frontier in terms of analyzing baseball and other sports, is the interaction terms. Mm -hmm. How do these parts kind of interact with each other? Is this particular player not just a great additive asset, but is he complementary to what's going on around him? And, you know, obviously there's both on-field and off-field kind of aspects to that. Without question, and you know, my dad was a GM for the for the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates World Championship, and and that was always what they talked about when they're going to add a player. Everybody knows their their what's on the back of their baseball card, you know, statistically. But it's like, what kind of guy is this guy in the clubhouse? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's been talked about for years, but now people are looking into it as the science, so to speak. And and I think what what Theo is referring to more than anybody else, and it sounds to me like everybody in, in that organization recognized the fact that the one moment that was the difference maker on that team winning the World Series was when they had the rain delay, and Dexter Fowler, who was like a major statistical disappointment in last year's season, he's the one that got the whole team together and said, hey, guys, this is our time. This is our time to do this. And it was that meeting in the clubhouse for that 15-minute, whatever it was, rain delay in Game 7 after Chapman gave up the, the, the yeah. tying run. And, 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 they, and everybody said if it wasn't for Dexter Fowler, he's the one that brought this whole thing together. So it wasn't because he was such a major disappointment statistically, but he was a major asset you know, with, with what he brought to the table to bring that team together. So, Rick, how much of that do you think 
can be engineered. You've spent time with teams. You just mentioned the fact that your dad GM'd you know, the, the Pirates back in the, the – they made a movie. We are family. They made a whole song basically about – about the about the team because mm-hmm. there was such a family atmosphere. How much of that can be engineered versus how much is just luck? I, I think it's just you know. I mean, I, this may sound really way out there, and I you know people have accused me of being on Pluto. Fortunately, I haven't left the galaxy yet. <laughs> but, but but I think it has to do with karma. It's about you know one of the old adages uh, as a coach is people would always say you know players don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that's really, really critical. And I think when people truly care about each other, I mean, that's what team chemistry. If you want to really get down to the, to the, to the, to me, the, the very bottom line, it's about people caring about people, that people can make a difference in people's lives in a positive way. And that's what it's really about. And when you really, you know, look at, again, I've learned so much from doing this book about what reframing literally is. Dexter Fowler reframed that moment for, 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 the, for, the, for the Cubs. And you look at historically, you know, things that have been done. You know, one of the greatest things that was done in, in our lifetime was Martin Luther King reframing the civil rights movement by I have a dream. I mean, here, here it was all fighting, and he's talking about a dream. I mean, that, that, that's what great people do. They reframe moments for people. Got it. President, yeah, President Kennedy, what did he say? Don't ask what the country can do for you. Ask what you can do for the country. He reframed. He reframed that whole you know, that whole moment for people. Well, one of the interesting implications from of what you're saying is that it's not just about finding the right guy or the right, you know, woman in, in, in female sports, but, but also maybe the environment you create and that there's a role for management and coaches in creating that environment. That's interesting. It, it brings to mind a recent analysis I saw on Buck Showalter, um, the, the, the skipper of your most recent organization, the Baltimore Oreos, he has a long time outperformed expectations. So, again, kind of add up the back of the baseball cards. We know ahead of time what a team is supposed to do. And Showalter, more than chance would suggest, outperforms the sum of the back of the baseball cards. So, mm-hmm. curious what you think it is he does that pulls that extra performance out of his team. You've been pretty close to him. He, what, what he does, and, he, and, he, and he's, he's absolutely fantastic. great at it. He's great at it. What he does is he prepares his team to realize that we can handle every moment. There's nothing that will happen in this game that we're not prepared for. And and he, he gets people to believe, <clears throat> like all the players that believe they can and all the players that believe they cannot are both right. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he gets people to believe huh. you know, that, that we can. You think and, he's better at that? You've seen a lot of managers. He's better at that than others in some way. Why do you think that is? He is because he's, he's incredibly bright. And he's meticulous, absolutely meticulous in his preparation. You know, and, and when you go through cutoffs and relays and you go through, you know, the average plays that happen, and, and he, he messages the fact that, and he brings in a lot of people are, are, that outside of the game that people would recognize. I remember uh, the one year Ray Lewis, he, he, he has his, uh, you know, what do I say, his tech team around him. And, and they they do this videotape every year that that they show like when all when the, when the whole team comes together in spring training for the first time, we go to a movie theater and he'll play a movie um, or, or a film I should say, and it's all these clips and and one of the things and it really hit me Ray Lewis Ray Lewis says. Great
Greatness is doing all the simple things perfect. It's not about doing something phenomenal, extraordinary, but just do all the simple things perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's the one thing that, that I've, you know, I, I've been around a lot of great people in my career, and it's the one thing that I learned. You know, one of the stories in our book about Michael Jordan, you know, I don't have time to tell the story on today's segment, but I will in another segment. But, you know, I was curious. I, you know, I, I was like a woodpecker on Michael Jordan's. Every time I was around him, I'm asking him a zillion questions because I'm just curious. Michael Jordan, are you kidding me? What makes this guy so great? I mean, and you think about, he hasn't played basketball. How, how many years has he played basketball? I don't know, 15, 20 years? And, and his, his shoes are still the number one. People that are, the kids that are buying his shoes, they never even probably saw him play a game live. And, and yet he's still, his shoes outsell everybody. He's Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what makes him so special is that he understood that talent does not equal performance. Preparation equals performance. You will never, never out-prepare out-prepare or out-perform your preparation over time. It's not going to happen. You know, so, and, and, you know, that whole adage of, you know, there's an incredibly high price to be best. You have to pay full price. It does not come cheaply. You can't go to Walmart. You can't go to Target. It doesn't go on sale. There's no coupons. <laughs> you, you have to pay full price every day. And, and that's what greatness is all about. And, you know, as a coach for 15 years in the big leagues and, you know, another whatever, 15-plus years in the minor leagues, you know, it's the one thing that, you know, was, was our total message. You know, I would always ask, day one of spring training, is everybody here committed to best? Right. Are you committed to best? Well, Rick, and that's you, that's a great message, and it's it's not always the sexiest message. We give our message that to our students on in negotiation, for example, preparation. Right. Not the sexiest message, but it's an important one. That's been Rick Peterson. Rick, thank you for joining us. Awesome. My pleasure always, guys. Our regular guest, Rick Peterson, author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. If it's 8 to 10 Eastern, you're listening live. Otherwise, it's one of the five times we're replayed over the course of the week. You can join the conversation if we are live one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or email us, especially if we're doing a replay right now. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. We are off the ground in the social media age. You can follow us on Twitter at W Moneyball at W Moneyball. We are just off the phone with our regular baseball guest Rick Peterson. Coming up in this next half hour, Jeff Sackman talking tennis with us. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Jeff Sackman is co-founder, or rather founder-founder, no co-founder, co-founder of Amateur Baseball Data Service, but we're more interested in the, in the tennis side. He runs the Tennis Stats website, TennisAbstract.com. He tweets from the handle at Tennis Abstract. He writes for a number of outlets, including The Economist and The Wall Street Journal and Tennis Magazine. I've read some great stuff from you on The Economist and enjoy your follow on Twitter, Jeff. Delighted to have you with us. Yeah, thanks very much for the kind words. Where are you calling in from today? 
I live in Norway, actually. Norway? Good Lord. Did you go there because you're a data guy and the data say people are happiest there? <laughs> a lot of the data does say that. Uh, I'm certainly happiest here, but it's. Um, I, I met a girl while I was on holiday a few years ago, and turns out she was Norwegian, so here I am. <laughs> it also it also makes uh, it has the added benefit that early morning uh, East Coast American uh, radio That's shows right. are not no problem for you. Absolutely, yeah. I um, as part of my baseball business, I submit reports to several of my clients in the morning and. Hitting those morning deadlines is no problem at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just I just spent a couple of weeks in Japan recently, and, and being 13 hours, I felt like I was ahead of the entire world. <laughs> like I was so so productive. Jeff, yeah. Once uh, you're on the other, once you're on the other side of the dateline, then it's like you're calling from the future. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's a nice feeling, guys. I like that. All right, so. Jeff, we want to talk about lots of things, but can you give us a little bit of background on how you got started in this business? And, and, and as we've noted, you're involved in both baseball and tennis. Can you tell us where, where, where you came from in this stuff and, and how you think of your portfolio now? Yeah, um, I've been doing baseball stuff since, I mean, I, like everybody else in, in almost all sports analytics, if you like, I started out as a baseball nerd when I was a kid and stats and baseball cards and all that stuff and then the money ball stuff started happening so around 2003 2004 i started really getting getting into the um, analytic side of baseball and did a lot of writing for hardball times baseball prospectus and that kind of stuff and like we mentioned i do the amateur baseball thing gathering data for major league teams um but after a while you know especially since what my baseball business does is is with college baseball the college baseball season kicks off in the, at the end of January, believe it or not. So if, if you're a hardcore baseball fan and you're you're following the, the season from you know, January 27th or whenever the Division II opening day is this year um, through the World Series, that that's just burnout waiting to happen. So <laughs> yeah. after, after a few years of that, I just I just needed a break from from all that. And um, and I, I've always been a big tennis fan. I, I was a much better tennis player as a kid than I was a baseball player and still am by a wider margin. And there's so little tennis analytics out there. And of course, in baseball, you know, there's there's a lot going on. I mean, we can argue about how how much influence it has, but there's there's tons of people doing really interesting stuff. And in in tennis, I felt like there were so many really basic questions that as far as I knew at the time, people hadn't even started to answer. I mean, it turned out that there there has been a, a, a sort of ongoing, sparse academic literature for the last few decades. But as far as a public conversation along the lines of a baseball prospectus or that kind of thing, there's there's nothing. And there's still very little. It's, it, we've made some progress in the last few years. But I realized some really basic things, like, like even having any kind of public data set you could work with, um, it, it just wasn't out there. So I started working on this website more because – I wanted to have it than anything else. I mean, I, I wanted to be able to run some queries and, and answer some pretty basic analytical questions. So I, once I've, I've built a data set, it seemed natural to make it available to everybody. So I tried to, I tried to make a, a, a website available that would be searchable, sortable, filterable, like as, as friendly to analysts as possible without mm -hmm. being completely wonky and off the charts in that direction. Um, and you know, I've, I've been steadily doing some some tennis research trying to answer those initial questions I had for the maybe the last five years or so, mm -hmm. and we're making the progress. So, Jeff, it, it strikes me that 
baseball was basically your training ground. I, I didn't I didn't realize this until recently. You, you always wonder how a person's trained up on this stuff. And n- that makes sense to me because I feel like you've come into tennis analytics from a different angle than the people who were already there. And you look around and you say, you know, you guys are missing a lot of important stuff here. You're thinking about this in the wrong way. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hypothesize that that came from the way you had been doing work in baseball. Yeah, I think that's, that's accurate. Um, and, I mean, a fair number of the people doing tennis are, are, are players and coaches. There's a few coaches who have you know, picked up a little coding and done some interesting things that way. And, and there are some academics and some of the academics involved have done some great work. Some other ones you feel like they're kind of looking for, for a fun side project and they're not necessarily so up on the, the intricacies of, of the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was coming at it from an angle of someone who, I mean, I love the sport. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan, analytics or no analytics. But mm-hmm. I think there's this, there's this undercurrent in all of baseball analytics that goes straight back to Bill James of you're listening, you're, you're watching a match on TV, you're loving it. The commentator says something and you can't believe it's true or you have to test it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's such a fundamental part of baseball analytics, but I hadn't seen people answering those questions. So just a really basic thing like, like a commentator saying, we're going into a tiebreak here. John Isner is the big server. He, you got to give him the edge in this tiebreak because he has the big serve. Or you know, we're into the key seventh game of a set. You know, we, you always think of the seventh game as the one that determines the direction of the rest of the set goes. And nobody had really tested that stuff. Right. And when I, hear, when I hear that kind of stuff, that's just like a, a klaxon going off in my head. Like, we have to be able to figure out the answer to that. I mean, right. it's not that difficult of a question. Right. Are, right. There, are there particular, this is Shane Jensen, are there particular commentators that uh, you really like listening to for that type of thing? I mean, as, as you're saying that, I'm kind of thinking, oh, maybe I should send like thank you letters to people like Joe Morgan and Tim McCarver in baseball who would say such outrageous, <laughs> you know, kind of quantifiably like false things that like, yeah, I would rush to my computer and be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe how wrong that guy, how wrong that statement was that guy just said. So are there particular tennis commentators that you believe you feel like are are really kind of on point as far as the quantitative stuff uh, or or completely off point, which is also, I guess, a service? (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a funny way you put that because it really is a service. I mean, just to to, to hold off on directly answering your question for a minute, it it occurs to me that there's a tremendous amount of value in being able to pin down what the conventional wisdom is. And in – in baseball, of course, we have so much more literature going back you know, 100 plus years with, with different generations of people with opinions about, you know, the sacrifice bunch or this or that. And there's been the I'm not a numbers guy guy for like generations, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and in tennis, you, you have some issues like that, but there's a lot of things where I find myself digging into a, a subject and I kind of thought I knew what the conventional wisdom was, but when I sit down to write it, I have a tough time finding a source that, that is spouting hmm. you know, the, the official word like you can usually get in, in baseball or other major sports. Mm-hmm. But uh, a, one guy who's, who's kind of on the conventional wisdom side is the columnist Pete Bodo, who writes for Tennis.com and ESPN, and he, he writes some really interesting stuff. I, I enjoy reading him, but he's definitely not a numbers guy, and he's probably the closest you can find to sort of a, a Joe Morgan or Tim McCarver. Like, he's, he's the official voice of the, the commentary at conventional wisdom, mm-hmm. traditionalist kind of angle. Um, so he's, he's worth a read for that reason, if, if nothing else. And there's a crew of guys on, on the other side of the conversation, a crew of guys who, who do the, 
the ATP World Feed, which is what you'll get on tennis TV or sometimes, depending on who your local broadcaster is buying rights from. Um, but a former doubles player named Robbie Koenig, who's fantastic, and his, his uh, partners, Jason Goodall and Nick Lester, the three of them are really solid. They're really interested in analytical stuff. I wouldn't call them particularly analytically minded, but I've been in touch with them. They've, they're reading some of my work. They're, they're just, I, I think they're coming around to thinking about things a little more that way. And you can hear it in, in the way they call matches, if only because they're a little more careful not to spout the untested conventional right. wisdom stuff that they might've been saying five or 10 years ago. Right, right. We're talking to Jeff Sackman. Jeff is the founder of tennisabstract.com. He tweets at the handle at tennisabstract. He writes for folks like The Economist and The Wall Street Journal, one of the best analytics guy on tennis out there. Uh, but we want to hear some of the deeper work that you've done, but can you start us out with some shallow stuff? So it, the uh, things like, you know, if you were to give some tips to, to people who only watch tennis maybe four times a year or maybe even less, maybe only Wimbledon, what have we learned that might be helpful from the last few years of, of analytics on tennis? So, for example, an example, uh, even, you know, our, our colleague, Eric Bradler, who watches more sports than anybody ought to, I remember his him having his eyes open whenever he learned something something simple like, you know, if the if the if the guy serving or the woman serving is down love thirty, then there's at that point that's a fifty fifty chance of them winning the game something like that. That's eye opening. It's like the love thirty is not quite the hole it looks like because of the advantage of serving is so high. Are there other things? Is that one? Is that true? And then two? Are there other things like that that you think could just help us be better informed casual tennis watchers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the biggest overall one is that momentum is overrated. Um, it's real, but it, it's sort of like the discussions around clutch. And I guess it, it is just a different way of saying the same thing, that I, I'm not going to tell you that clutch or momentum doesn't exist in tennis because it absolutely does. But the way that most commentators think about momentum, talk about momentum, our instincts about momentum and clutch – I think vastly overrate how big a factor it is. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the one thing I mentioned in passing a few minutes ago was this notion of the seventh game, and that goes back to Bill Tilden. I think he was writing about that in the 20s or 30s, so it could go back even further than that. This idea that if you get to 3-3 in a set, that seventh game is the momentum maker for the rest of the set. Right. And, it, of course, there's a, there's a sort of confirmation bias thing going on here where if you watch enough tennis, you will see instances where someone breaks at 3-3 and runs away with the rest of the set. You'll see someone with a really solid hold at 3-3 who runs away with the rest of the set. But we, with any confirmation bias is, issue, we don't think about it every time. We don't notice it when it doesn't happen. Right. And there's a lot, there's a lot I, of games in that denominator that you're you know, calculating, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, some, sometimes it is going to look like momentum, yeah. but... On that specific thing, I ran the numbers on it. There's basically no effect. doesn't matter what happens at 3-3. Mm-hmm. There, there's no momentum that, that stems from that. And there's a lot, of, a lot of conventional wisdom around what generates momentum. Like once you break serve, you have to be really careful the next game because the other guy is probably going to break back. Um, I haven't found strong evidence for that. So all these things that, that imply that, you know, one micro moment in a match is going to influence the next few, there just isn't a lot of evidence for it. So it's not to say it isn't there, again, but if, if, you're, if you're hearing that come out of the mouth of a commentator, then you should probably be skeptical and just thinking, well, what, was, what did I expect going into the match? What are these guys' right. overall ability levels? 
and make your judgment going forward based on that rather than what happened in the last three or four points. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right. So there's something that we've learned a little bit over time. There are lots of things we still have to learn. So you have a piece recently called The Five Big Questions in Tennis Analytics. Can you refresh us on what those five big questions are in your opinion? Yeah, I, I tried to go from macro to micro, and I started with big picture forecast. So if you're looking at a 19-year-old future star or a possible future star, uh, making a prediction of what that person's career is going to look like. Uh, the second one, a little more micro, is match-level predictions. So, you know, these two women are going to play this afternoon. What are the odds that one of them is going to win? Um, the next one down is in line. The, the third issue is in line with what I was just talking about. With the, the, the sort of momentum like, issue, or how how much you can, how much you should deviate from like the independent model. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and there certainly are instances where it, it that is the case, and they might vary from player to player. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but we we don't have an answer to a lot of those sub questions yet. And the last two are down at the shot or tactic level. So quantifying the effectiveness of a, of a specific shot, like the Federer backhand, or quantifying a tactic, which is the final one, um, like figuring out how effective serve and volley is, or how effective it is to go with a you know, swinging volley instead of an overhead, or something like that, um, you know, setting up points with a serve in one direction, not the other. And those last two were barely even scratching the surface at this point, because there's so little shot-by-shot data. I mean, I, I started a project called the Match Charting Project, which is a, a crowdsourced effort to log every shot of professional matches. And we've got over 3,000 matches now, so we've got a pretty good data set. Wow. But for some players, that's, that's, really, that's really not very much. I mean, we have, I think, 275 Federer matches. But if you go down to number 60 in the world, who's I mean, a pretty important player in the grand scheme of things, we might only have six or seven matches of his. Got it. So we're still kind of um, kind of approaching the edge of these sorts of problems. Jeff, there's so much motion tracking technology in other sports, and we know that there are at least the capability of doing these things in tennis, but it, you know, it's expensive and involves lots of equipment. Do you think that's coming, and if so, at what rate? I mean, it should that should be something that is automatable, no? Yeah, absolutely. And what's frustrating from from my perspective is that it is partly here. So every court that has the automated line calling system, the Hawkeye system, they've got all that stuff. They have cameras tracking every motion of every player, the speed and spin of every shot. You see, you see some metrics uh, on broadcasts for things like that, like the RPM of someone's forehand, something like that. Uh, or you get the nice graphics of, of the landing point of every first serve, something like that. And there's a, a research group at Tennis Australia, the federation that runs tennis in Australia. I guess that's obvious. And the Australian Open. And they have that data from the Australian Open and I think from a couple other tournaments in Australia. And they're doing some interesting things with that. I mean, there's a really uh, strong researcher named Stephanie Kowalczyk, who's, who's got her own blog um, on the T.com where she's digging into some of that motion data and, um, and, and giving at least some basics on the fastest forehand or whether Andy Murray is playing too far back or further back than he used to, things like that. And there's, there's some limitations there because they only have access to their own data, which is just a couple tournaments a year. Um, that's really the, the biggest problem standing in the way of looking into this sort of data is Tennis Australia owns the Australian Open data. Mm-hmm. The USTA owns the U.S. Open data. And they're <laughs> not the sharing LPG. it particularly openly. And I think that's sort of, that 
that as an issue, that kind of data sharing or the public availability of data kind of transcends just tennis. I think that is kind of what is maybe holding back a lot, you know, kind of quantitative development in a lot of sports. I mean, we look at something like hockey. Hockey is a, a, a big sport for me. Um, and it's so clearly behind kind of relatively comparable sports like basketball in terms of its kind of quantitative development and how much it's a presence in the industry. And I think it's in, in large part because of the data availability, which, mm-hmm. again, like, you know, what you're doing with, with sort of like, you know, putting as much tennis data on the web is a real service to the entire community. It, it, it really tends to speed up development. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'd like to see happen. And and part of my goal is to encourage others to do the same. And I don't know whether what I do will influence an entity like the USGA. I mean, it probably never will. But but yeah, I would like to think that if someone does take the first step, the dominoes will start to fall. Mm -hmm. Um, If if there is hope for that. well, it's hard. It's, it's, it's harder in oh, tennis. I, I, it's got to be harder in tennis because there are these disparate organizations. In mm-hmm. hockey, there's like one North American. No, that's organization. right. And, and and that decentralization. I mean, you could argue both ways that decentralization could actually help because all you need is one of those organizations to take the chance, and maybe it succeeds, and then the others follow suit, right? Whereas something like you know the NHL, you need somebody at that top level to kind of make this decision, and until that happens, it's it, it, it's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. I just the reason I think there's hope is I, I look at how baseball has evolved, and you know. 12 years ago or whenever, when I was doing some work with fielding in baseball, all the data for fielding in baseball was very proprietary. You know, we had to, like, you know, basically have, you know, an entity purchase the data for us. It was very expensive. It wasn't as good. And now through StatCast, I mean, all that data is basically out there. People are are working with PitchFX. People are working with StatCast fielding data. So I I feel like baseball in the last decade has really moved a lot not just in terms of quantification, but also just in terms of data availability to the public. So that that's kind of a you know one of one of the kind of more optimistic sort of like story, narratives out there. Yeah, that, and that is reason for optimism. I I wonder how much it crosses over because baseball has such a strong tradition of everybody understands that a lot of people are fans in an analytical mm-hmm. way. Like yeah, no, that's the numbers right. Are driving fan interest and. I know from you know virtually everyone I talk to about tennis, there's there's plenty of, of similar interest in tennis, and it's not it's probably a couple order of magnitude orders of magnitude less, but it is out there. But it's sort of a chicken and the egg problem. Without any data, yeah, people aren't going to get into it. People aren't going to get into it, so we're not going to get data. Um, so I, I don't know what happens there. And I mean, probably it, probably probably with that chicken and egg thing, it would just have to be very incremental. All right, we're talking to Jeff Sackman. Jeff is founder of TennisAbstract.com. He's a great Twitter follow at at TennisAbstract, and he writes periodically. You can find him. I'm not sure how much they credit you guys when you write for The Economist, but we know he shows up at The Economist, sometimes The Wall Street Journal. Jeff, you had these five big questions. One of them was match forecasting. Did, did you happen to anticipate Kerber's trouble? I did. I, I didn't. Um, I don't think I specifically made a prediction against her. But one thing I've been working on just in the, in the last week or so is is surface specific ELO ratings. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been using ELO ratings for tennis for a while, and I, I've sort of hesitated to move on to surface specific ratings because I thought it would be a bigger project than it was. But what turned out to be the case is if you use only results on a specific surface, so not not weighting um, with anything else then you actually get a significant improvement in, in predictive accuracy. 
And what it turned out was that a, a few top women, Kerber, Karolina Pliskova, Johanna Kanta, uh, Kanta also lost in the first round, um, very strong overall. They're in the top 10 in overall ELO, but really pedestrian on clay. And wow. you know, hardcore fans know that they're not as good on clay, but it's when you're talking about like a top one or two player, then it's not really clear what you say when you say that. Like, are they number 10 on clay or are you saying they're number 50 on clay? And with the surface specific ELO, it, it turned out that, that Kerber, I, I forget what the number is, but she's quite a ways down the playlist. Kant is like barely in the top 100 on clay, if I remember right. Wow. So, it, so we were able to, to predict a little better just just how much of a shot. Some- Lose the first round to a shocking upset. You said something, I, I, I'm curious if I heard it correctly. Did you say it? you can do really well just by using surface-specific rankings? We would have thought you'd have done something, you know, some aggregate ranking that included all the surfaces and then, you know, some kind of weighting system. So you borrow, like, the, the forecast for Kerber on clay might be... Fifty percent clay, twenty five percent grass, twenty five percent. Yeah, and it, so- it sounds like you, you, I, you, you. It sounds like you asserted that the optimal weighting for that is a hundred percent on the surface in question and zero percent on other surfaces. Yeah, that's exactly right. And wow. I made the same assumption that you guys are saying. Um, it, it, what I don't know is is when you go further down the the list of players who aren't playing full time at the uh, on the WTA tour. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you run into sample size issues yeah. with those players. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that was my biggest concern, and it still is a concern on grass. I, I'm not that confident okay. in in 100% grass weighting, but for clay and hard court, um, yeah, you do better with 100% than anything else. And, and I didn't believe it, but you know, the the numbers don't lie. So given given this, so Elo is the of course it goes back to chess, and now 538 uses it as kind of a common model across all of their sports. And you're saying that's a very adequate model for tennis, especially court specific or surface specific what does it say for the rest of the tournament and everyone's talking about nadal of course nadal is looking at winning his 10th trying to win his 10th french open and um and getting closer to federer's overall grand slam number what is your take on 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 the men's side of the draw well with the, i run a forecast for every tournament um with those elo ratings and right now it's got nadal at almost exactly 50 percent so Two to one to win the title. And how, uh, how does that how does that compare to the number one seed in other tournaments? Usually, it's not that high. Um, I I haven't run a, a forecast with this specific model for for very many tournaments, so I can't be super specific. But in general, in the past, the the best player is going to come out about thirty five to forty percent. Mm-hmm. At a Grand Slam, when, mm-hmm. when all the best players are there, mm-hmm. so Nadal's pretty dominant, and a, a big part of that is the is the weakness in the, the weaknesses in two places. One is, of course, Andy Murray has struggled a great deal on clay this year. Mm-hmm. So uh, against Nadal's fifty percent, I've got Andy Murray with a six point two chance of winning the title, oh, which wow. is incredibly low for a top seed. But on the other hand, I'll bet that's more optimistic than the betting markets on Andy Murray right now. Wow. Okay. Who, who else should we have our eye on? If it weren't going to be Nadal, who do you think might sneak in there? Well, I think it has to be Djokovic because it's it, it's just a question of, of who's going to beat Nadal. And Nadal got pretty lucky in the draw. There's some people who you can think of as, as dark horses to, to pick off a match like that. Someone like John Isner or Nick Kyrgios, like a, a big electric server. Right, right. You can just have one big day beat him in three tie breaks and not necessarily play better but play 
play well enough to win that one match, but all those guys landed in the other half of the draw. Okay. Um, Dominic Team, a different sort of player, but a guy who beaten it all in Rome a couple weeks ago, he landed in Djokovic's quarter, and that same that same tournament in Rome a couple weeks ago, after Team beat Nadal, um, Djokovic crushed him. He matches up the team matches up a lot better against Nadal than he does against Djokovic. So if you were to list like the top eight or ten guys who could beat Nadal on clay besides Novak Djokovic, he's not going to face any of them. There's almost no way they're going to get wow. far enough to play him in this tournament. So it's it's really the semifinal against Djokovic, and if Nadal wins that match, I can't imagine anyone else winning the tournament. Got it. All right. So, Jeff, you also talked about a few other questions in tennis analytics. One of them was at a lower level, the shot and tactic level. Our producer, Matt Johnson, is a diehard tennis guy. He, I think he'd have us talk about tennis every show if he could. And he wants to know about this backhand thing, two-handed versus one-handed. You've you've dove deep into this question. What can you tell Matt about, and the rest of us about two-handed versus one-handed backhands? You know, I'd, I'd like to be able to tell you a lot more than I can. Um, that's something that I'd, I'd like to I'd like to research a lot more. I've done a little bit on on the effectiveness of of the one-hand and two-hand returns. And I don't think there was anything super clear cut. That's like going back a couple of years. So I don't have that on the tip of my tongue. Um, I know that someone else whose name I can't recall at this moment um, did, did some research that suggested that there were a few too many one-handed backhanders, I think, that okay. it was slightly overrepresented among in the top rank. Well, you tennis aficionados uh, consider it the more elegant way to go, right? People kind of kind of swoon over some of the players' one-handed backhands. Am I right? And, and if, if that's true, it certainly it's going to be overused, no? Yeah, you'd, you'd think so. Um, yeah, it, it is a bit of a religious question, I think. <laughs> a lot of the people who swoon over one-handed backhands are like me. We have our own one-handed backhands. Right. So, you know, it, it seems like the better choice. But also, the the counter-argument, for one thing, there are some people who, who are just kind of contrarians about anything like that. And the Nadal fans, the Djokovic fans, of course, they're, they're going to go with what their guys hit as well. Right. But players like Nadal, who were able to get such vicious topspin – they they can kind of take a one-hander out of it, their opponent's hand. And that's a big part of the reason why so many players have ended up going with two-handed backhands in the last couple of generations because it's so tough to defend against a, a big topspin shot. And the, the direction it. that racket technology has gone, string technology, makes it easier to generate that kind of topspin. So it, it's tougher, Got and it. that's a big reason why mm-hmm. Federer lost to Nadal so many times over the years. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, Jeff, before you go, a couple last questions. What what question most interests you right now? Like if, if you turn to your data today, if you can tear yourself away from the beauty of Norway and do some work today, what are you going to be doing work on? Well, I actually did do some work today uh, since, of course, I've oh, got it's, a He's so <laughs> ahead of us. Ahead you of forget, us. man. He's already had an optimally productive <laughs> day, and this is just right. the cherry on top. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, optimal might be a stretch, but sure, cherry on top. I'll take that. Um, what I what I was just working on today was on uh, on surface preferences in men's doubles, because I I've always been under the impression, which is sort of my own conventional wisdom, that surface wouldn't be as big of an issue in doubles because the points are really short. You've always got somebody at the net, so a lot of the things that make clay courts different uh, aren't really an issue in right. doubles. Right. But I, I ran this surface specific elo for men's doubles and found that. One complicating factor is that it doesn't give you the same boost in predictiveness, but there's bigger differences among the top 50 players in hard and clay court ELO ratings for men's doubles than there are for men's singles or women's singles. Oh, geez. 
that the surface preference is is a bigger deal. It has more impact in doubles than it does in singles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is, that is surprising. That's one of those. Now you need to go back out to the to the coaches and players of the world and ask to get some insight into that. Presumably, yeah. I wonder how much there's selection bias, just because you know. I mean, I think it's more optional that players, top players, play doubles right than play single. I mean, you've got Federer basic or, or Nadal playing across all the tournaments in singles. Do, do the top players play as often across all the different surfaces and doubles? Yeah, that's a, that's a legitimate issue. Um, the very top players do play about the same schedule that the singles players do, but because there's only there's there's a bigger mix of play, people playing doubles. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes single stars will dip in. Sometimes the the wild cards can make up a bigger chunk of the field. But um, but yeah, that, that that could be an issue. You could have a, a, a some selection bias and a, a, an inconsistent range of players. That's a possibility. Jeff, before we let you go and take a shot here, you do baseball stuff as well. You are the co-founder of an amateur baseball site providing data. And you mentioned, so College World Series just been seeded, sub-regional starting soon. Do you have anything to say or point us toward for that? I have. I hate to admit it, but I have nothing to okay. point you toward. <laughs> I, am the, I am the bad example of a, a baseball analyst who lives in his spreadsheets. So I, right. can, I can run you the query, but I, I have... I have no opinions to share at all. Come, come on. I, want, I need to know the chances for the Longhorns, man. Yeah. You're supposed to give me some insight on my team from all the way over there in Norway after being a tennis expert. Sorry sorry to hang you out on that one, Jeff. But listen, man, yeah. we, we really appreciate your taking the time to join us. Wish you the best with the work. Love following you. Keep up, keep up all the great stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. You bet. That was Jeff Sackman. You can follow Jeff Sackman on Twitter at TennisAbstract.com. He's the founder of the website, TennisAbstract.com. You can also catch his writing in publications like The Economist and The Wall Street Journal. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Some combination of us are here this morning. It's Kate and Shane. Audie and Eric are out and about. They'll be back. You can join the conversation one eight four four wharton That number again is one 942 You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Especially if you're shy, don't want to talk to Matt live, send us an email. We do pick those up during the show. We also pick them up during the week. If you're listening, one of the times it's replayed, that's a great way to catch us. We're off the ground in the social media world. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We tweet some during the week, some about the show, some about live events. Had a question out this week. Best month of the year for watching sports or at least rank the months we've had this conversation once on this show sometime i really think it ought to be a regular feature months months ranked by sports watchability you know may's making a good a good uh case i think i mean honestly i mean i we we've we discussed this before but october runs away with it well i i kind of i kind of agree with you because playoff baseball hockey and basketball have started football's in full swing Really, for me, the only question is how to rank August through January because yeah. the the top six months are going to be the football months, and everything else is just for the bottom half. 
I agree with that, actually. I agree with that. But, so, 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 yeah, we need Shane, separate rankings for non-football versus football. Look, man, in, we, we're, we're in the deep, dark, cold offseason of football, and these other sports look better, by contrast, than That's they would right. otherwise. And That's so right. the Indy 500 on Memorial Day weekend sounds fantastic. And come on, Kentucky yeah. Derby? I no, mean, that's no, I glorious. agree. I agree. And I one agree. of the beauties of the Kentucky Derby is the thing lasts for two minutes. I mean, if you can't set aside and take in a horse race for two minutes, you're not spending your life correctly. So that's this that's month, why that's why I'm obsessed with sumo wrestling, right? I mean, you know, it's 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 ten seconds of glory I, well, who followed knew? by who knew? You know, that's, I had but no, it sounds a like half hour of ceremony. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of ceremony, and pomp, and circumstance yeah, up front. That's right. That's right. The, May also has these conference finals in hockey and basketball, and these seasons last so long. It really is kind of conference finals when you start no that's right i mean mean, that's the one thing that argues i guess against something like october specifically the kind of basketball and hockey contribution to october i mentioned is it's very there's very little contribution for them but i mean balance that against the world series you you know the baseball playoffs which are always unbelievable and and the fact that football at least is in full swing we're we're caring about football we're basically arguing like you know Celts Cavs and that's not a fair argument how about let's take it let's set football months aside and take May versus April so we had a little we had a response on on Twitter in the past week on okay how about April April's April's got what? Start April's of baseball. Got, Start of baseball, baseball which that's is the opening awesome. day of baseball. That's like kind of the, the end of the regular seasons in hockey and basketball. So you often have some excitement, like, kind of there for the for the seeds, basically. Yeah, yeah, or or just making the playoffs, right? You know, uh, I mean, again, in hockey, that's really exciting because if you make the playoffs, you might actually go far in the playoffs. In basketball, it's sort of like, oh, great, we made the play. You know, <laughs> you you get that make the playoff banner, but then you lose to Cleveland that's in the first right. round. It, it, yeah, exactly. They they don't even get banners for that anymore. Yeah. There's the Masters, which is the best golf tournament of the year. There is the Masters. There's the NFL draft. You see football sneaks in. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. NFL draft. There's also spring football in college campuses around the country. All right. April, April's April's making a solid push here. So do you think April tops May? I think yeah, we just I came up so. with the topping May because you sneak some football. NFL there. draft, I think, was the tie, was the game changer on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we might be a little bit biased. Is we there, are. We is, are. Is there anything going because on? Football is amazing. I mean, I think, Matt, we're going to extend the show this morning to talk about football until, what, 11 a.m.? Is that the way it's going to go? This so booth we, so isn't booked, right? We 80, can just keep going. 80 minutes. 80 minutes of spring football coming up. <laughs> what do you got, Shane? What's going on for you in the world of football right now? I can go. I can go. I can go. Yeah, t- t- <laughs> tell me about the Longhorns. Tell me what's going on with them. Because, I mean, you know, you know, my football yeah, allegiant. Yeah, people are tired of me talking about the Patriots. So let's talk about the Longhorns. That's incredibly, incredibly self-aware of you to acknowledge that. Oh yeah, no, because I've gotten, I've gotten a relatively strong feedback. I mean, people are not subtle. <laughs> well, it's in their May. It's May, with and me, you've been like, going, you've been going on about it for four. You think, I mean, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm like a, a missionary that's kind of going on. Can like, can I tell you about the Super Bowl? Yeah, Shane, you'd think <laughs> that a, te- a guy who's been pulling you for Boston, that? you've been pulling for Boston teams for yeah. the last fifteen years, which which has been, yeah. I don't know, the best stretch for a city in the history of professional sports. Possibly. You'd think that you would become, like, cool about – it's like the guys who score touchdowns and they're like, yeah, you know, act, <laughs> like, you, act like you've been there before. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have so not been acting like you've been there before. You've been like a kid. You've been like a 13-year-old kid experiencing his first I Super think Bowl. my youthful energy is even cooler than somebody <laughs> who's like, oh. I mean, would you prove you like, oh, yeah, just another Super Bowl. That's fine. That's all right. <laughs> no, I feel like my, my has, exuberance towards that, that game that happened just uh, a few months ago, yeah, I, think, I think it's charming. But uh, I'm not getting a lot of 
external feedback that it's charming. <laughs> it's surprising. Yeah, it's surprising, and, and I suppose in that respect, it's cool. So the, the, <laughs> the, the only the only news that I have on the horns is that they signed the best they signed. I mean, it's a verbal commitment. Yesterday, mm-hmm. number one running back in Texas, verbally committed. Wow, Keontae Ingram, I think Keontae All Ingram right. committed to the horns. So. You got that when um when is is there a, when does uh sorry for this very amateur question but when is the kind of is there a closing on oh, yeah, ver- nine, on commitments nine, nine months from now <laughs> well no that's good to but know. you still like your verbals you still yeah, like your no verbals. yeah that's right that's all right. right can we talk about something more substantive than uh high schoolers talking about where they want to go to college 12 months from now how about the nba we should probably engage this finals thing yeah let's have because it. i feel like we're finally at the point of the nba season where it's not certain what's going to happen right i mean i don't think it's that certain i mean it it feels like this is i'm in a weird position because you know i'm I'm of course the guy who's been arguing all season the sort of cynical guy is like oh basketball is basically deterministic there's no variation there's no randomness exactly there's one implication of that for these finals and it's that it's a foregone conclusion that's right so i'm kind of switching i I feel like now that we're here i'm i've almost kind of switched to Why? the opposite side of the Why? spectrum. I feel, well, because I think people are really underestimating the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers in this. How could they be underestimating them? Would well, that... I mean, what, what, I, I think the current, at least the odds when we were discussing it last week, you know, the, both the Vegas odds and, and, and both Eric and Audie gave odds that were in the, you know, 15%, 20% range. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's too low for like, for, for, for basically we're repeating a series from last year. And obviously, you can argue the Golden State Warriors are better, and yeah, yeah I mean that's no, inarguable they're that they're better. Exactly. They got better, um, but Cleveland did beat them last year, and Cleveland is, is is has has basically dominated the teams they've gone through as well. And I don't, and I I do think Golden State being better this year does translate into them being favored, but to like be favored to like eighty percent, ninety percent, whatever these. You know what? Whatever these odds are right now, that I think is a little crazy. Well, you know, here's an interesting thing that I just came across by chance, yeah. Shane, which you're going to love. Uh, it's a piece from ESPN using their BPI, which is their advanced analytics on their uh, professional basketball side, and it's good. I mean, ESPN, yeah, they have some folks doing some really good work there. FPI is one of the best you can do for football, and their BPI is good for basketball. They ran numbers for for the oh this is a few games in this was yeah this was two games in when the warriors were up two nothing yeah yeah this isn't mid season i thought this was before the season started two games in the warriors are up two games nothing they had them in san antonio or no this is for the finals last year last last year's finals they had them 92 to 8 percent but that was with a two-game loss but that shows you kind of how absurd the number is right now because they're starting out even of course zero zero and yet people are putting it at like 15%. You know, some of that, the 538 numbers are based on a long track record over the regular season when it seems like the Cavs are playing in a different gear, partly because of its injuries, but also because they, you know, they're conserving right. health no, and I, energy. Yeah, it, it's, hard, it's hard, you know, it's hard to glean anything from the regular I mean, you can glean some things, but that, yeah, the fact that, you know, there's so much resting going on during the regular season. To take, like, you know, all regular season games as kind of a representative sample of what we might see in the playoffs. I, you know, we everybody can think about the bias in that. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can take playoff games from last year. Of course, the teams have changed a bit 
but I think playoff ga- I think playoff games from last year is more indicative of what we're going to see okay, in this series a, a strong, than, than, strong, than regular season games from this year. That, that is a strong it, statement. It feels like you're discounting a little bit the Durant factor. I mean, how can you add one of the top two and or he's three playing players at a very top level? Yeah, no, I, I'm not discounting it. I mean, again, if without Durant, would the would Golden State still be favored in this? Like, 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 try and consider this alternative universe where basically the exact same teams returned from the to the finals again this year that were last year. I think in that scenario, you would favor Cleveland. Did win last year? Yeah, but things happen all the time, and you wouldn't against your prior odds. And you update a little bit. You're not going to update that. Much. Sure, but How, I mean, however, but, the but Cavs without, are without, without Durant, say, what would are, you? Cavs are healthier this year than they were last yeah. year in the finals. So that and the fact that they won. It might be a push, right? I'm okay, so we're, 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 so right without Durant, we're at fifty percent. Durant changes that from fifty percent to like eighty-five percent. Really? I mean, he's a great player, and he's playing incredibly well right now. But well, that is too much of a jump. One one reason it feels like intuitively it could be too much of a jump is how much difference can one player make on top of a great collection of yeah. other players. Right? That's right. There has to it, there has to be some reduced marginal value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dimin- and, 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 and I, mean, I, I, I think he does contribute a lot because a, you know, there's an interaction effect that like you know just having him on the court, there's gonna there there's less they can do less pay less attention to Steph Curry, they can play less attention to like you know yeah. Thompson, all these other guys. But consider the impact he adds. You know, if he if he had him on the sidelines last year, he yeah. was on the sidelines. Decide, am I going to sign with the Thunder or am I going to sign with the Warriors? He would add more probability to the Thunder. Certainly, oh yeah, right. Because there's one great player there. That's right. Versus three essentially great players. Yeah, for yeah, the yeah. Warriors. His like his you know wins his his contribution definitely would be greater on the Thunder, and obviously his contributions positive on Golden State. I guess I'm just sort of like, I guess I'm pushing back on this jump of like thirty to forty percent in the yeah. win probability just based well, on his presence. We're going to find out here yeah. in a couple of days. There's a great piece. You know, we 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 do a lot of uh, five thirty eight pimping here. We could be a satellite for five thirty eight, or maybe we should be a paid subsidiary of five thirty eight. Mm-hmm. But a nice piece by Kyle Wagner and Chris Herring on LeBron. And if you're going to watch the series, you might want to look at this piece because they talk about the LeBron James school of driving. And it it can be they give us a little more nuance into something that looks like it's just you know sheer strength, and you might you might miss some of the subtleties here. But they they run the numbers on what happens when LeBron drives versus when other people drive in the league, and he's basically head and shoulders above everybody on everything. You know, yeah. he, he's getting to the he's getting to the foul line more often. He's completing more of his drives more successfully. He's hitting other people for three point shots more successfully. He gets more of his own shots. Obviously, there are a lot. He completes around the rim like a big man, essentially. Yeah. But he's not dependent on somebody getting him the ball like all big men are. He can do it himself. So yeah, these, unassisted, these unassisted completions at the the unassisted buckets at the rim are are off the chart. So it, he just he changes the game because he can do all of those things. And it's it, that kind of insight, I think, is going to help you appreciate how they try to attack the world. Right. I mean, I, I, have, I have two kind of points to make. One. Um, I wish I could have gone to the LeBron James School of Driving when I was learning to drive. How amazing would that be? <laughs> I feel like that's. I'm not very sure. Cool. He, I'm not sure how much of it would translate. No, sorry no. Um, but um, no, I, I think I, LeBron James is just such a unique, superlative player. I, I, I think 
if the if Cleveland does somehow pull off this, you know, the win again in this finals, do we start talking about oh, LeBron no James question. in the conversation no with question. Jordan? No question. He's already playing in nine straight NBA finals. Yeah, in ten out of the last eleven, or some right. absurd thing. So, oh, and it, oh, and it looks. Oh, so maybe year, you're behind the curve on this. Do you think that discussion is already sure. happening? It ought, it ought to be happening. It's at least happening, but. It's, but, I, but I, I, I would agree. say most Americans, if you asked them, just sort of point blank, yeah. best basketball player of all time. I think they'd probably still go with Michael Jordan. I agree. I agree. Um, but we're, we're we're also biased. We, we watched him all those years. Yeah, they, they were our formative years, and now we're the big voices or whatever. Yep. The, the that's media. right. That's right. So let's see. His career's not over, and oh, I'd say clearly, if he were able to pull this kind of upset off, he would be mm-hmm. squarely, squarely in the conversation. Yeah. Speaking of other superlative players. Mike Trout goes out with an injury, so unfortunate. It's very sad. So, you know, I it, like it, watching it, that guy play. It can't. It, the injury happens at like at the same time that all these articles were coming out about how great Mike Trout is because we all knew and people who paid yeah, attention. Yeah, and, and we we were actually talking about uh, we've he's come up in a couple different conversations on the show in the past few weeks. One was just sort of predicting home run totals for the season. We talked about that last week. You know, we we talked about Audie had a, a really kind of. Nice kind of comparison of Mike Trout versus uh, the guy in the Yankees, Aaron Judge. You know that that Aaron Judge Yankees. Yeah, that Aaron Judge is probably you know it has much higher variance to sort of his his predicted home run total at the end of the season, whereas Mike Trout has a much lower variance. Okay. Audi essentially gave almost no variance to Mike Trout's home run hitting right, performance. Right. But there's of course all that kind of low variance is conditional on him being actually playing. Yeah. So we we see that there that even with these very consistent players, there's this extra de- amount of randomness that comes from injuries. I mean, and, talk about and, randomness. He hurt his thumb sliding. Yeah. I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah, that's right. And 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 it's not just this. This is a random event that impacts not just this obviously this current season, but this is the type of injury that can linger and can affect him over multiple seasons potentially. Right. You know. So then we start talking about like how does this affect his career numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So geez, it, geez, it, it geez. does. It does induce a little bit more uncertainty in a guy who, you know, as Audie would point out, has been pretty, <laughs> pretty certain throughout his whole career. Right. His what? It was six years. Yes, yeah, so six or seven years of just absolutely consistently off the charts performance. Well, they were talking this year about how, against all odds, he's somehow getting better. He's yeah. already basically the best player in baseball. And he's getting better. This is all stuff that was being talked about just before he went out. There is, again, a 538 piece by our buddy Neil Payne over there. But there's also a ringer piece by, um, and we'll get the name here in just a second, but Bill Simmons' new website, The Ringer. Bill Ben Lindbergh has a piece. So Ben and Neil both have these pieces on breaking down how Trout is getting better than ever. And I'm kind of floored reading these articles about how much detail we have these days on performance evaluation in baseball. I mean, the extent to which they can just break it down and then break it down a little further and they break it down a little further yeah. yet to say this is what's going on with this particular batter. So a couple of examples. Uh, Trout, and one of the things they're really talking about with Trout is that despite being so good, he's getting better at things that he historically hasn't been as good at. So uh, one that really jumps out is they have this 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 statistic that looks at how often a guy swings at pitches that aren't strikes yep. versus how often he, he swings and pitches that are. So you'd like this ratio to be as low as possible or flip it around. You want mm-hmm. them a high percentage of strikes to be swinging at and That's a low right. percentage of non-strikes. And this is basically how well they discriminate the strike zone. Mm-hmm. And when the guy first came in the league, he had a phenomenal first season, one of the best first, one of the best seasons, period, much less first season. Yeah. 
he was only in the first percentile, which is the the wrong end to be yeah. on, on this stat. So he wasn't. He was swinging at too many bad pitches and yeah. taking too many good pitches. So he, he his his brilliance at that point was more just he could hit anything. He could hit anything. Yeah. So this was 2011, 2017. What percentile do you think he's in in this in this stat? Six, so he went seven f- years later. Seven years, six and a half seasons later. I he's bet gone he's from the worked first his way up into the like at least 80th percentile. 94. Oh, my goodness. His percent, here's his progress. Here's his progress. This is how, I mean, just think about yeah. what what do you need to be working on in your career that you can move from the first percentile, six and a half years later, you go 38th percentile, 61st, 76th, 60th, 88th, 94th. It's almost monotonic improvement Wow. from the first percentile to the 94th. And that, thing. I mean, it's so unbelievable because this is sort of what trips up most, you know, most professional baseball players. They get to, you know, they're, they come into the league, you know, and and they're kind of they're hitting well, and the pitchers take a little time to adjust, but pitchers always adjust. They right. will always they learn, find they learn, your hole. They, they learn batters. You know, exactly. there's a ton of analytics going on on that side of, of 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 the competition as well, and they'll always find your weakness. And really good, kind of in terms of longevity, baseball players are able to compensate to, for that. But this is just another level of compensation, <laughs> going from the first percentile. At, I mean, it, it's it's floor it floors me in two different ways. A, the fact that he can still be like the best player in baseball, having been only in the first percentile right. on this particular very important aspect of hitting. Right. But then that he has managed to go from the first percentile to the, what you said the ninety fourth percentile. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable! <laughs> that guy is a that guy is a beast. Well, they 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 break down other pieces as well. So yeah, apparently he used to really sit on first pitches, and mm. and of course, as you say, you know, pitchers learn this, and so they start throwing a lot of first pitch strikes, or they throw a lot of first pitch curveballs, and now he's swinging at a much higher rate. He's gone from like never swinging on first pitch curveballs to now he swings on you know whatever sixteen percent, and a lot of those he's not swinging on, he's not swinging on them because they're not strikes. Yeah, but that's another that's like that's again it's part. This is cool because of the way he evolves as a player, but it also blows me away about baseball and what they can say about performance measures yeah. and performance evaluation. And I and I and I just wonder to what extent are other non sports organizations going to learn from sports over time and start breaking down performance in this level of detail? Because once you can break it down to that level of detail, people can get feedback yep. and they can work on these things and you know, six and a half years later. Yeah, they can and change. I think I, I think the only trade off to this extra level of detail is, you know, you definitely want to always be evaluating kind of like in an out of sample kind of way. Because the more detail you get with the data, the more you can subset the data, the more you can potentially find spurious relationships. Sure. as well so like right. i think i think the more the more detail we go into the more high resolution the data becomes we always have to have this kind of protection that we're not overfitting that high resolution data right well there's the, and they, they have some advantages you know there are some things that we know are un uh unambiguously positive so exit velocity is kind of the yeah. interesting one in baseball these days mm-hmm. where they can now measure precisely the speed at which the ball's leaving the bat, yep. and they know that high speed and, is and good. And that's very predictive, as it turns out, of very, how far the ball goes. And so they get this very, very fine measure, and it's a process measure, because who knows what's going to happen when the ball leaves. It may hit yep. straight into the shortstop's glove on a line drive, but it, it tells you, even in those instances, how well the ball was struck. And so yep. it's this very clean performance measure. What would be the exit velocity exit velocity measure for your professional career shane what what would be the pure performance measure for how you do research or how you teach or how good a oh my you goodness are? i yeah it's it's i'll tell you it's not teacher evaluations <laughs> probably not teacher even though no. you do well in teacher evaluations. so but, but that's the kind of question that 
hopefully yeah. non-sports organizations are beginning to ask. All right. That has been another show here at Wharton Moneyball, another two hours. Appreciate all the help from around uh, around the table. Shane and Cade here. Our buddies, Adi and Eric, we missed you. Dion Simpkins in the house holding down the soundboard. Very much appreciated. Matt Johnson, our guests, and all the listeners. Come back and join us in two weeks. We'll be actually next week. Come back and join us in next week. Until then, enjoy your sports. Thank you.